Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. You know, in Proverbs, it says that an offended brother is harder to win than a walled city with the gates locked. So I truly hope that none of us approach this with a spirit of offense because we all have different backgrounds and different circumstances that have led us to where we are. And when we're confronted with the idea that maybe we've been acting out of a lot of bad paradigms, it, it tends to create conflict and then it stirs up offense, which is not good. Today we're going to talk about relationships and we'll discuss some do's and don'ts and peel back some layers about what healthy and unhealthy relationships each look like I want to establish a note first. We'll be discussing some character traits that are at times specific. Putting this together was a very humbling experience for me. It confronted me with my own unforgiveness, my own pride. And while I wrote it, I realized that what I was presenting could easily be used as a weapon for us to attack each other rather than as a salve to heal. So with that in mind, there's a few things I want to establish about this discussion. This talk is not for snippy one-liners to win an argument. This is for introspection, as in that thing where you reflect on the things you think and why you think them. This is to edify and admonish, to encourage you. And this is mostly about you taking responsibility for you. If your takeaway from this is that everyone needs to be treating you better, you miss the whole point. So, with that established, I also need to make it incredibly clear that there is a wealth of information on this subject. In fact, far more than most subjects, as I found, I did a search on Amazon exclusively under the books search option for relationships, and there came back over 100,000 results. For comparison, I looked up some other topics, the most searched topics, and saw how much there is for those. There's more for relationships than there are food. And still yet more for money. Uh... 90,000 and 80,000, respectively. Think about that. In this country, we have written and published more on relationships than we do either food or money. And I'll pick on food for a minute. Just because you have a lot of it doesn't mean it's particularly good. And I've known people who are impossibly lonely and have thousands of friends on Facebook or Instagram followers. Quantity might look really good in a popularity contest, but deep down, we all crave quality relationships. We all crave closeness. Most people want a relationship where they are in tune with someone else, where you're able to discuss struggles in life, your hopes, dreams, your desires. You can share your wins and your failures and not worry too much about the other person just outright rejecting you. And I am incredibly blessed to have a relationship like that with my wife, Diane. We are regularly able to discuss whatever is on our heart whether it's joyous or painful. And one thing I really enjoy is us discussing the different things that we've learned. Recently, Diane and I were sharing, uh, she was sharing with me a a story from a series of books she'd read 
about a group of missionaries that went to South America in the 1950s, attempting to contact a tribe called the Aka and bring them the gospel. Little was known about this tribe, and virtually no outsiders knew the language. The tribe lived deep in the jungle and was extremely reclusive. Contact with outsiders was generally violent. This group of missionaries, all men, most with wives and children back home, set out on this incredible task. The group of missionaries had some very encouraging initial contact with the Aka, and there were repeated signs of friendliness. When everyone back home encountered only radio silence, they knew something had gone horribly wrong. They put together an expedition of people from several different countries to see what had happened to them. And after a few days, they were found, speared to death in a river. The news was brought back to the wives of the missionaries, now widows. There's a really moving picture of them being told about their husband's demise, all sitting around the table holding their babies. And they wanted to know every detail. A few years later, a few of the widows decided that while the Aka were hostile to other men, maybe they wouldn't kill women and children. And they decided they would pick up where their husband's ministry had been cut tragically short. It took years of difficult work, costing them enormous emotional capital to bring the gospel to the people who had killed their husbands. It was physically dangerous, and it cost them their health. Go live with a tribe of locals in the jungle and see what they try to feed you. See the kind of infections they regularly tolerate. They sacrificed their health and their emotional well-being to continue their husband's work. And some of you are familiar with this story. One of the missionaries killed was named Jim Elliott, and the work was continued successfully by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. Much of her story is detailed in her book, The Savage, My Kinsman. In it, she writes, I prayed for the protection of Jim, that is, physical protection. The answer the Lord gave me transcended what I had in mind. He gave protection from disobedience. And through Jim's death, accomplished results, the magnitude of which only eternity can show. Most of us have never had the guts to pray that way. And it's incredible. And when I first read it, I had to take some time and think about that. She was able to see her husband's murder in this light. And it eventually led to her reaching the Aka tribe. The work took years, but was eventually a success. She wrote, it gives me much more personal desire to reach them. The fact that Yeshua Messiah died for all makes me interested in the salvation of all. But the fact that Jim loved and died for the Akas intensifies my love for them. When I reflected on the awesome work that Elizabeth Elliot and her sisters in the faith undertook, It is really incredible and beyond what most of us will ever experience. She dealt with extreme trauma 
And by doing one of the hardest things possible, realizing that her husband's murderers were completely and totally without the gospel and did not know Yeshua, she forgave them, formed genuine connections with them, and brought them to Yeshua. It's incredible. The results of the love she showed, only eternity will reveal. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Jim Elliott ended up laying down his life in the mission field. His wife did not just speak the words of forgiveness. She didn't sit around with a group at a tea party and say, yes, yes, I forgive the people who harmed me, the people who widowed me. She lived it radically in deed and in truth. And here's where I got really uncomfortable. Diane and I were discussing this story, and I was struck with a realization that I didn't like. The love that Elizabeth Elliot showed to the Aka, the people who murdered her husband, is greater love than most of us show our children, our spouses, let alone our brothers and sisters in the faith. She showed her husband's murderers more love than we generally show our own husbands and wives, our own children. And it made me very uncomfortable to realize that, that maybe I was incapable or unwilling to love in such an extreme self-sacrificial way, even to those who mattered to me the most. From this came a number of conversations between Diane and I, and the fruit of that I will share a tiny piece of today. Relationships either do not form or fall apart for a variety of reasons, and here's a basic one. First, you think it should be easy. We want relationships to be easy and simple, and sometimes they are, at least for a period of time, but sorry, it's not always the case. Marriage is hard. Being a good father or mother is hard. Being a good son or daughter is hard. We want to delude ourselves into thinking that it should be an easy process, and when it's not, we become unhappy and we disengage. Once the path of a friendship, of any relationship, gets rocky, we're tempted to eject out of the relationship and let it crash. You want an example of some devoted friends? How about Job's? Job chapter 2. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw his pain was very great. Did you catch that? They sat there for seven days in silence. I've been so depressed I didn't want to talk to anyone. 
However, in my, adult li- in my adult life, at least, I have yet to scream at the sky, tear my clothes, throw dirt on myself, and sit on the ground and not say a word for a week. Job's friends were showing loyalty and solidarity during a time of trouble. They didn't exactly know what was going on or why, and in a way, because they're his friends, it didn't matter. Their friend was going through a tough time, and they were going to be there for him. And that is an awesome principle in friendship. Buy into relationships when the value is low. The most basic of investing advice is to invest in something when it's valued low, and it will pay off when it's valued highly. Buy a house when it costs $20,000. Sell it for 10 times that. Job's friends were investing in their relationship with him when he was at the lowest of lows. It is easy to support someone when they're doing well, rich, and happy. Job's friends invested in him when he was broke, diseased, and depressed. You really know who your friends are when you hit hard times and suddenly you have little or nothing to offer. Or even worse, associating with you might be distasteful to other people. A good friend of mine went through legal trouble many years ago, and he was hit with legal charges, which I found pretty ridiculous in a stretch, but they ended up sticking. What I found equally ridiculous was how many allegedly strong-believing men completely abandoned him when he needed to be surrounded the most by strong-believing men. That said nothing about my friend. That said everything about them. Years ago, I hit a point in my marriage where I thought Diane might leave me. I was an emotional and psychological mess who was pretending to be fine. And it was all my fault, too. I had been a bad husband. When I chose to confide in her, she made it extremely clear that she loved me She wasn't going anywhere. And she was going to help me work past what I was going through. Do you have any idea the loyalty she created in me that day? From there, I confided in a select few friends who instead of offering the condemnation and judgment that I feared, offered encouragement and support. This, this showed me who my friends were. Not that they were there when things were great, But when I was hurting, and they helped me up, friendship is not always easy. Sometimes you have to sacrifice for it. Sometimes your spouse, child, parent, friend is a real bother, and it would be easiest in the moment to drop them and disregard them. Ignore them until they're able to sort their problems out for themselves. Don't do that. Quality friendships require often difficult work. The best things in life might not cost money, but they will necessitate lots of character. They will require genuine effort. As former President Kennedy said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You want a get-to-the-moon result? Put in a get-to-the-moon effort. You want to be like Elizabeth Elliot and bring the gospel to the native tribe that murdered your husband? Good. It won't be easy. But the results will echo through eternity. You will have to get to work 
building those connections, which leads us to the second reason why relationships fall apart or never form. You think it should be easy as the first, you do not form connections as the second. We all need friends, and friends help us through times of trouble. It's been said that you're the sum of the five closest people to you. Choose those five people wisely. And if you let those into that circle, whom you shouldn't, you'll notice the results in your character. Rav Shul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also were doing. Encourage one another. Build one another up. This is incredibly important. But what does that look like? It means being genuinely happy for a friend when they accomplish something. Mourn with them when they are in mourning. Fellowship with them and just enjoy being around them. Support them in their struggles. Don't let other people take advantage of them. Yes, you should look out for your friends and stick up for them. You are your brother's keeper. Most people have at some point had someone in their life who pretended to be a friend, but seemed a little too happy when life wasn't going your way. Or when you had a success, they'd try to one-up it. Oh, well, that's nothing. I have a friend who was able to blah, 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 blah. And we've all seen people like that. Don't do that. They look for flaws in you, and they look for flaws in what you do at all times. And I say, hey, with friends like that, who needs enemies? You might be familiar with the verse in Proverbs, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Did you ever ask yourself why the righteous man rises again after a fall? Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor, but if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. That's why the righteous man gets back up. Friends are there to help you, to restore you. It's this process that is incredible. You need to form bonds and connections. When you see someone go through something that is incredibly trying, and they stumble and they fall, and hey, it might be 100% that person's fault. Your friend might have brought the majority of it on themselves. Be a good friend and help them up. If you want solid relationships, you need to do the things to form strong bonds. In their book on raising children, Michael and Debbie Pearl discuss this process. And while they intend it in the context of raising kids, it works for relationships between both adults and children, including husband and wife. They call it tying strings. They write, there is a mystical bond between caring members of a family. I can look at each of my children and feel the union. It is as if we were joined by many strings of mutual love, respect, honor, and all the good times we've had together. The more good experiences we have together, the more strings that unite. Where two or more people are living together, their interests, opinions, and liberties sometimes clash. The strings that unite are often cut by selfishness, indifference, pride, self-will, and the like. Where there is not a constant tying of new strings. Family members soon find themselves separated by suspicion, distrust, and criticism. The gap can grow so wide that the two can become virtual enemies. 
So how do you tie strings? What does it look like? They continue later in that same chapter, be a friend. And again, remember, they're talking to their, about their children. Be a friend. Do with them the things they enjoy doing. Be caring. Be more ready with your ear than you are with your mouth. Be very sensitive to their concerns. Tie strings until you have earned their respect and honor. If they sense that you like and enjoy them, they will respond in kind. Children do tend to respond to that sort of thing. You know who else responds to that kind of thing? Human beings of all ages. Rav Shul writes in Romans 12, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. If you want to see how a lot of people behave, then flip this verse on its head and just reverse everything. Be apathetic to one another in unsociable neglect, giving rejection to one another in dishonor. This kind of thing is shockingly common. And many of us have some of these traits practically hardwired into us, which is why it's so difficult to get away from. And it's so incredibly disturbing. A really big way to be a good friend is what Rob Shule writes in Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Messiah. You want to know a really quick way to shut someone down, to get them to completely disconnect from you? Tell them that they don't have the right to feel the way they feel and completely dismiss everything they say, especially when they're sharing a wound with you. Years ago, while I was on active duty, Diane was pregnant with Ariella, and I was sent off for four months of training. Diane was having a really hard time with being separated for so long, and when a few people would ask how she was doing, she would share honestly. She would say, I'm having a hard time with Rusty being gone for so long. Now, there are a few people specifically here who did not do this. I will say that the majority of people she shared her struggle with delegitimized her problems by telling her, you're a military wife. You're not supposed to miss your husband. Or, you just need to toughen up. How open do you think she was with those people after that conversation? When someone shares a hardship or a struggle with you, I can personally guarantee you that is not the time for you to begin discussing how you've never had that struggle or how you can't possibly identify with that struggle, how you beat that a long time ago and it's no big deal, or how you're somehow supposed to be better than that. No, bad, stop doing that. You're being a bad friend. Act like the follower of Yeshua you are supposed to be and fulfill the law of Messiah. Bear your brothers and sisters' burdens. Be a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on. If you're unable to help, then at the very least, do no harm. You might notice there's a common thread in all of my talking about strings, forming bonds, sharing burdens. It generally requires you to be physically present. In Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Congregational attendance is linked to these ideas of friendship and encouraging one another in righteousness. As a special note, if you think just showing up to service and then leaving with no other interactions counts, You did not assemble with us. You simply occupied the same physical space for a brief period of time. 
This isn't just something that's addressed in Hebrews. The rabbis have addressed this as well. In Pirkei Avot 2, Hillel said, do not separate yourself from the community. And in Mishnah Torah, it says, whoever has a synagogue in his town and does not worship there is called a bad neighbor. Fellowshipping together in synagogue and in your personal lives is absolutely crucial. We are social creatures, even introverts. I know, I'm, I'm married to one. You will not become who Messiah wants you to be by locking yourself away in solitude while convincing yourself that you're some sort of Elijah who's out in the wilderness on a mission of God. Remember my first point? Relationships take a lot of work. They're hard. And forming those bonds and tying strings can be hard work. People would rather find a thousand excuses than be part of a community. And you want to know the worst part about a community? It's also the best part. It has this bothersome thing called other people. Gross, right? People tend to mess things up. I know, I am one. People tend to do things wrong, even the best people. Don't believe me? I think there's a coincidence that the hero there is no coincidence. The heroes of our faith all had some pretty deep flaws. And at times hurt those they were closest to. We live life together, and eventually, we will let each other down. On a long enough timeline, I will let each and every one of you down. It might be in a small way. It might be in a really, really huge way. You will find yourself dealing with a friend who maybe just stole a piece of gum from you. Not a big deal in the scheme of things. Or maybe one day, you'd be in a position that Elizabeth Elliot was in, and feel God calling you, to forgive the natives who murdered your husband so you can do the work of Messiah and fulfill the gospel. Yikes. That's not a position any of us covet. And you have a choice to make. Are you able to muster up the strength to forgive? Can you come to God in prayer, in tears, asking him for that strength? For the sake of your eternal soul, I truly hope you can which is my third point. Relationships fall apart. One, we think that should be easy. Two, we do not form connections. And three, you fail to forgive and repent properly. Forgiveness can take a few forms. I'll boil it down and risk oversimplifying this dramatically. And it's more complex than this, which Elizabeth Elliot's own story and experience will show but I've also found it breaking it down this way to be useful. The first type of forgiveness is when you basically give up the right to get even with someone, which is especially helpful when we're not dealing with replacing material goods. If someone steals my TV, I can say you need to replace that. If it's not something material, if it's an offense, it's difficult to put a price on, and you can choose to find a way to get even with them or to forgive them and let it go. And you ask God to not hold it against them either. Second Timothy two, or Second Timothy four, all writes: At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Now, there's an issue here, not with Paul, but with making this the only real form of forgiveness which we exercise. There is no encouraging of repentance for the party in the wrong. And there is no restored relationship. And I'll be honest, when I put myself in Paul's shoes there, it stung. 
and I had to take some time and unpack it. Paul was called to court, where he had a lot riding on that verdict. And where were his friends, his brothers in the faith? Gone. They deserted him. Everyone. Paul isn't saying here that he's cool with those people. In fact, he's pointing out that they sinned against him, which would not have been Lashon Hurrah, as court cases are hardly private affairs. Paul is making it clear that he does not want that sin held against them. We see Yeshua on the cross and Stephen being stoned, saying similar things before their deaths. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Hold not this sin to their charge. Ideally, we want to lead others to repentance and restore the person, who in this case, the sinner, to a sanctified state and restore the relationship. Paul discusses this in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I remember years ago someone telling me that he was pretty confident that he would never, ever commit adultery. Why? Because he just couldn't possibly see himself doing it. Okay. I accused him of hubris, and he pushed back. My response was something like this. Abraham had marriage problems, significant ones. So did Jacob. Reuben committed adultery. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law when she was pretending to be a prostitute. Unpack that for a minute and think about how different that is from our modern culture, and and there's a a whole mess of things going on there. (laughs) King David committed adultery and arranged a murder to cover up the resulting pregnancy. Samson and Solomon, respectively the strongest and smartest to ever live, each had problems with women. But you, friend, you're telling me that there's just zero chance of this ever happening to you? Because what? You're too good? You're too smart? You're too strong? There's a reason Paul's word, Paul words it this way. If you're caught sinning, any sin... It is the duty of other believers, in here, the spiritual, to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. As in, you don't yell at them about how completely stupid they are for an hour, when a talking to for a few minutes will probably do just fine. And we have all deserved that talking to at least a few times in our lives. We are to have a spirit of gentleness and look at ourselves, as in reflect and be humble. Because you might very well do the same thing. Thanks. You mean I'm not supposed to feel better than them and superior when someone's confessing sins? It's almost like we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to each other like that in the first place. Restore sinners in a spirit of gentleness and be humble. If you can't do that, then you need to pray that God changes you because you are bound to do far more harm than good. Proverbs 17 says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. When you cover a transgression, as in forgive in a way which the sin or offense is gone, invisible, doesn't exist anymore, you are seeking love. I promise you, if this is your heart, God loves that about you. But the second half of this verse, if you're the person pulling up reminders of a sin, particularly one someone has repented of, you are separating intimate friends. Most Jewish translations render that second part of the verse a little bit differently. They render it that he who repeats a matter alienates God. 
We won't do a dive into the Hebrew at this time, but it is understandable why it's translated that way as well. An appropriate description for what's going on for those who broadcasts the sins of others. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers sins. Love is chief over all. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have love, you have absolutely nothing. The Beatles wrote a song about it too. I don't care how much scripture you've memorized. I don't care how much liturgy you know. I don't care how much you speak in tongues. I don't care how many languages you speak. I don't care how much the Holy Spirit flows through you for healing and for prophecy. I don't care how righteous you are. I don't care how much holier you are than other people. If you don't have love, you are hellbound and not a functioning member of the community. Have love, and that love will cover up sins, or at least give you the grace to work through an offense. On a long enough timeline, as I said, we will all disappoint each other. We all get to decide what we do when those disappointments arise. The devil wants us at each other's throats, only seeing our sin. Satan accuses us before God, calling out every sin, and I can assure you he wants legal authority to act against each and every one of us. In your relationships, who are you? Are you God or are you Satan? Carlos Sanchez said, the devil knows your name but calls you by your sin. God knows your sin but calls you by your name. Who are you here? Who do you act more like? That's critical. I will eventually let every one of you down, and I am well aware each and every one of you will let me down. I will let my wife down, she will let me down. My kids, if they're anything like me, are definitely going to let me down. Because I remember what my teenage years were like. Will you have the love that covers sins and still call me by my name? Or will we end up being a community where we know each other's names, but when we look at each other, we only see our mistakes? God himself sets an example here in his son, Yeshua Messiah, and it is a divine calling for us to follow that example. In fact, your soul depends on it. Matthew 6, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. When you take up an offense and use it against someone, Don't you realize that you're placing your salvation in jeopardy? God will not forgive you of your sins if you cannot forgive others. What on earth has someone done to you that it's worth you going to hell for? Forgiveness will be a required part of any relationship, and it is required for admission to the kingdom. Elizabeth Elliot had to have at least a little at first, in order to set out to bring the gospel to the Akka. And she had to have a lot of it over time because she ended up befriending some of the people who took part in killing her husband. The character traits of holding grudges, being difficult and vengeful, these are forbidden. And note here, the rabbis speak of this at length. If you don't forgive someone of their sin the guilt of that sin will fall back to you. So we have the three reasons why relationships fall apart. You think it should be easy. You do not form connections. 
and you fail to forgive and repent properly. There it is, the three big reasons. And you assume it's supposed to be easy. You don't form connections and bonds and tie strings. We don't repent. But how do we apply these? There's three places we can apply them. The first is in the congregation. And we need to apply this first in a community of believers. And it's the most generic application as it applies for virtually all of us. 1 Corinthians 1, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Relationships in the congregation, they fall apart because we think they should be easy. We don't form connections and we don't forgive or repent properly. How do these problems manifest? And we'll start talking about some more specific things. We tend to think relationships should be easy and we refuse to do the hard things like engage other people meaningfully or when conflicts arise, we simply leave. Show up for a, at a congregation for a couple of years and once you have built up enough offenses, you need to go somewhere else now. There's a, there's a joke about a guy who was stranded on a desert island and and he was eventually rescued, and there were these three huts there. And the person asked, uh, what are the three huts? And he said, well, that one's my house, and that one's my church. And the person said, well, what's that third hut? And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> we commonly see this when people form a clique, and they never, ever, ever venture outside of that clique. And we're all going to have some people we're closer to than others. Don't be reclusive. We quickly latch onto gossip and we believe it, which is a sin in and of itself. We become overly sensitive and we carry the offenses of others, which is also forbidden. Overcoming difficulties is quite simply put, difficult, but it is rewarding. The most basic way we fail in forming connections is when we straight up don't come to shul. You're not around the other people. You don't come to a congregation. Or when we do, it's completely self-serving. I'll tell you right now, and this will sound mean, I don't care about your self-actualization. And the body of Messiah is not a conglomeration of stepping stones along your path to enlightenment. If that's how you treat your brothers and sisters in the faith, you will find life to hold little depth and little meaning over time. What does forming connections look like? It looks like showing up and being part of the community, volunteering. Find a need and fill it. Or make a job for yourself. Improve the community. Be part of the men's or the women's groups. Be part of the Hanukkah talent show or the Purim play. Take part in the extracurricular things we do that draw us together and tie strings and form unique experiences. I can assure you, my partner on the mud run last year, we did some bonding during that 10 miles. Covered head to toe in mud. We went through electrical shocks, pools of ice. We had to carry each other, pull each other up, and at one point, actually bled together a bit. That was a malfunction on the course that wasn't by design. <laughs> Every year, I love seeing the cast of the Purim play get together, and I see everyone get to know each other better, and I get to know everyone else better. I see people grow in their talents, and they form connections that before didn't exist. 
And in the end, everyone knows each other better and is closer. When you go through things together, especially a common goal that you have to struggle for, you become closer and you build trust. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there a little. The heroes of our faith are not the types to just sit around waiting for someone to do something. Well, they check their Instagram. They did things. So, do something. And of course, we have to forgive and repent and do it correctly. There are several of you here whom I've spoken to far too quickly. I've shot from the hip. I've owed you an apology. And I do pray that we continue to be a gracious bunch. Deal with your problem. And once it's dealt with, that's it. It's done. It's gone. The sin is buried. Like when we toss a rock into the lake for Tashlik, the sin is at the bottom of the ocean. When you repent, make sure you mean it and that you learn from what you did wrong. And then you forgive. When you were called on to forgive, you forgive with a heart which only God can give you. If you're relying on your own strength, that will eventually fail you. They will know us by what? Our love for one another and by our fruit. When we are called to forgive, it is when we have the opportunity to show that love and that fruit. Tell a quick story I didn't plan on sharing. On, on deployment, we were about six months in, and you're spending about 14 hours a day with each other. And a couple guys uh, that were on my, on my team got into a bit of a yelling match, and it started to turn physical. I'll tell you about these guys for a second. One of them is my height, but about 40 pounds lighter. The other one is about my height, but about 40 pounds heavier of solid muscle. He competed on the national level in Olympic lifting and in bodybuilding, which are two totally different things. He is someone who I find disturbingly strong. That the guy who was 40 pounds lighter than me thought he stood a chance at bringing this into the physical and out from just a yelling match was kind of hilarious. And, and it broke up because I stood in between them and yelled at both of them. Um, so everything went away from there before uh, the heavier one killed the lighter one. But I did the math, and at that point, we had spent the equivalent of two years around each other in, in marriage terms, and how often a husband and a wife are around each other day in, day out. Two years of time inside six months, and we didn't pick each other. We were assigned. We could not have been shocked that people suddenly weren't getting along. Another place that we see these principles applied in relationships is with parent and children. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long life, long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's only a few commandments in Torah that promise a long life. And honoring your father and mother is definitely one of them. There's good reasons for that. So why do relationships between parents and children fall apart? Well, we think this should be easy. We don't form connections. And we don't forgive and repent. Raising children is not easy. It's, it's really, really hard at times. The older I get, I think back to how old I was 
when my parents were my age now and all the things that they were going through, and it's very humbling. Kids and teenagers, take it easy on your parents. You have no idea how much you owe them, and it's not even something you can ever really repay. Parents, take it easy on your kids. The stresses of being a kid today are different than when we were kids. I'm grateful I didn't have Instagram or Facebook or any social media when I was a teenager, let alone the restrictions that modern society has, like active shooter drills in school. Form bonds with your kids. Do things, things that are fun. If you don't, your kids will want to jump ship as soon as they're away from you. Make time for them now while they're still around because they won't always be. Once they leave home, everything is going to change. Learn how to forgive them, how to really forgive them. And when, when you do something wrong, parents remember this, you're never ever too good to ask your kids for forgiveness. Moms and dads, you might make a mistake at some point Set an example and ask your child for forgiveness. These are souls which God has entrusted you with. Be a good steward. And the third place to apply this is in marriage. Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Messiah also is head of the congregation. He himself being the savior of the body. And later in Ephesians 5, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Messiah and the congregation. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is able to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband's. Husband-wife relationships fall apart because we think it should be easy, we don't form connections, and we fail to forgive and repent properly. Speaking of things which are not at times easy, marriage can be so incredibly wonderful and then at times so incredibly difficult. And marriage often seems easy at first. You're riding on that romantic love and all those emotions you felt when you were dating or courting and then you're engaged and you're looking forward to the wedding and everything just seems wonderful. And then you get married and you go through that honeymoon phase. And that can last for a year or two sometimes. And people end up married And after a couple of years, reality starts to set in. And that reality is often, this person annoys me. (laughs) I'm going to address husbands and wives separately at times and then at the same time. Husbands, love your wives. It's commanded. Love your wife like Yeshua loves us. Your wife being submissive or respecting you does not mean she is a mousy, downtrodden mess. That is not the Proverbs 31 woman that you should want to be your helpmeet. If you are not reading that passage in Proverbs 31 every Erev Shabbat, I suggest you make that a new family tradition. Marriage is a picture of Messiah's love for us. Spousal abuse, abuse is just as much of a perversion of that picture as adultery is. Israel does not mean slave of God or servant of God. It means wrestles with God. Just the same, 
It is a good thing for your wife to challenge you in appropriate ways and at appropriate times. Look at Moses. Look at Abraham. They challenged God at times. They negotiated with him. They'd haggle with him. This shouldn't be the norm, the regular constant thing that happens. But don't freak out when it does. It doesn't mean your wife is being a bad wife. Wives, respect your husband. If you don't know what he finds disrespectful, it's time you ask him, and then don't do the things he finds disrespectful. This will be different for every man. Don't ever challenge your husband in a way that humiliates him. Your husband is called to love you as Messiah loves us. Don't make it more difficult for him by following what the world says to do and regularly being disrespectful and dismissive in the name of feminism or progress. That is sin. And Diane and I regularly see women treat their husbands in a way they would never themselves tolerate. Be the kind of bride that you're, for your husband that we are supposed to be for Yeshua. God rewards obedience, and you will be a true blessing to your husband and the rest of the community if you do this. A lot of these principles go back and forth. When Diane and I went, went through this, and she helped me tremendously with compiling this, uh, like 90% of this is back and forth, but we generally agreed on which uh, husband or wife we saw more commonly committing these things. Husbands and wives, you need to tie strings and spend time together. Find out what makes each other tick. What makes your husband or wife feel special? How do they connect? How do they see the world? Sometimes it means you won't have fun. But you're doing something because the other person loves it. My fraternal grandmother, my dad's mom, passed away in 2006. When my grandfather was reflecting on the time he spent with her, nearly 50 years of marriage, he told us marriage is not 50-50. It's 110% of each of you. You each do things the other wants to do without complaining, and you don't keep count of the things you didn't want to do. Make time for each other. For years, Diane and I hardly went on a date. We were in a remote area, and viable babysitters didn't often exist. We did a date at home. We trained the kids to stay in their rooms for a long nap, and we'd watch a movie or spend some time together. Whatever it is, make time for each other in a way that is meaningful to each of you. If you don't spend time together each week, you will drift apart. Husbands and wives, flirt with each other. Never stop dating your spouse. That was advice my mom gave me before I got married. Don't ever show contempt for each other. Psychologists noticed a strong correlation between a husband or a wife rolling their eyes at their spouse during a serious conversation. It's a sign of contempt, and that correlation, the more often that happened, the more likely divorce was. If you don't love your spouse, you need to get on the path of getting there. And remember, you only control you. You can't make your spouse do anything. You can encourage them. You can really want it. 
but you can't control them. Many times one of you or both of you needs to fix yourselves before you can do any serious work on your marriage. And you need to have the courage to recognize this and act on it. Remember to forgive each other repeatedly and don't dwell on the past unless you really want to go back there. Every marriage is different. Don't spend time coveting someone else's relationship. That will not end well. Do not tolerate harmful influences on your marriage. It might come from a friend who is antagonistic. It might even come from a family member, such as a parent or a sibling. You need to use discernment here, but do not tolerate someone trying to control or harm your marriage or your spouse. Husbands, your wives will do things that make no sense to you. Don't drive yourself crazy trying to figure it out. The sooner you learn to let it go and remind yourself, I love her, the better off you will be. Forgive her when she does something wrong or even just something silly. Don't make her feel like she is under a microscope. You won't get her to become the woman she needs to be if she feels constantly under a microscope. Your wife can become an incredible force to be reckoned with. I pity the soul that crosses my wife and seeks to wound her. This woman... I'm bragging on her a bit. Cared for two children in diapers and cared for animals with a broken hand while I was overseas. She had no help. In the end, she needed no help. Your wife can grow and develop into a truly amazing person. If you haven't experienced this yet, you need to figure out what you need to do to change that. Do not be an Ahab, husbands. Your wife might feign respect, but it will not be real. Wives, your husband will often do dumb things. Where it's not very consequential, just accept it and move on. Where he needs to apologize to you, make this clear. Take your battles. If you find yourself constantly arguing with him, spend more time in prayer, because something is very wrong there. When he apologizes, accept his apology and move on. If you fail to respect him, neither of you will be happy. I'll say that another way. You respecting your husband is the same as him loving you. Do not covet the leadership position he has over the home. Remember when Eve offered Adam the fruit? God didn't come looking for Eve. He came looking for Adam. Remember that your husband holds ultimate responsibility on his shoulders. You can help him, but you can't do it for him. He needs your help and support. Not your nagging, not your cynicism. Don't be a Jezebel. If you are a Jezebel, your husband will grow to despise you. Husbands and wives, make every effort to reach reach your spouse to win their heart, to win their love, to win their respect. Be willing to go to the extremes that God went to for us. Do not become an incredible person to everyone but your spouse. Round zero of your ministry is with your spouse and with your children. 
Nothing else will ever take precedence over that, including people in congregational leadership. If you cannot get these right, your witness is compromised. Elizabeth Elliot set an incredible example of putting in the hard work to reach a seemingly unreachable goal. She overcame deep wounds. She put in the hard work. She took years to build relationships. Her forgiveness and humility shocks and humbles me. And in the end, she won souls for the Lord. And only God knows the full extent of that incredible work. Put that same heart into winning your spouse. Put that same heart into winning your children. Put that same heart into winning your brothers and sisters. The music team, please come up. Would you join me in prayer? (sighs) Almighty God, without your love and your kingship reigning supreme in our lives, everything will fall apart. You call us to do an incredible task and a seemingly impossible task of repairing the world to kun olam. Please give us the strength to do the hard work, the hard things, to build community, to tie strings with each other, to grow in our love for our community of brothers and sisters. And when things go wrong, that we will repent and forgive that our heart towards each other would be the same as your heart towards us, that we would let nothing in heaven above or earth below separate our brethren from our love, not principalities or powers, not sin or offense. Lord, please turn the hearts of children to their parents and parents to their children. Please strengthen the bonds between husbands and wives. And by the power of Messiah living in us, our marriages would be pure reflections of your love, God, for your bride. We ask this of you, that your word would not return void, but would be made manifest in our hearts, our souls, our bodies, and our lives. We ask this not by our merit, but by the merit of your son, Yeshua, for his glory. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.